Hi everyone, welcome back to our broadcast. Today's topic is changing technologies. Technology's unintended consequences raise social, legal, and ethical questions in ongoing debates. Many technology and data advocates believe that data is the new oil. It requires a computational level more significant than that of humans to understand the data we collect, and it's clear that technology is evolving how we live. COVID-19 control strategies have pushed the boundaries of how we integrate technology into our daily lives. For example, data collection has challenged policymakers to identify the optimum trade-off in privacy and transparency. The pandemic has highlighted the gaps in the current technology policies underscoring the need for transparency as it creates a greater need for data privacy. Beyond the pandemic-driven changes, states have been locked into a race to develop and deploy superior AI and 5G capabilities. However, the pandemic has slowed the rollout of 5G with supply chain and harbor delays, but increased data traffic globally. What is the government's role in protecting its citizens in anticipation of a 5G rollout in the post-pandemic world? And how can policymakers collaborate with technology firms to provide secure technology platforms for the consumers? Today, we're joined by Professor Wachowski to discuss these topics. Dr. Alexis Wachowski teaches on government, media, and technology at Columbia University and serves as Deputy Chief Technology Officer for Innovation in the City of New York. Prior work includes the American Red Cross, the U.S. Department of State's Office of E-Diplomacy, and the permanent mission of the United States to the United Nations. Outside government, she has worked in media impact research, information architecture development, academic book indexing, web coding, theater production, foreign sitcoms, and pretzel vending. She holds a PhD in information science from the University at Albany's College of Engineering and Applied Sciences, and has a bachelor in Chinese from Connecticut College, completed in three years cum laude. She lives in Brooklyn with her family and reads science fiction ferociously. Hello, Professor Wichowski. Welcome to a broadcast. Thanks for having me. So we would like to start today with where you start in your book, The Information Trade, and that is with the concept of net states. You argue that some big technology companies have expanded to a point where they are taking over functions of the state. So it would be great if you could further describe the idea of net state and how their roles have changed over time. Absolutely. So I think one of the first things to think about with net states is that the language that we use to describe traditional um, tech companies doesn't really fit with the roles that they've taken on. So tech companies are acting more and more like countries in the sense that they've expanded into areas that used to be the sole domain of nation states, like defense, diplomacy, public infrastructure, citizen services. But they're clearly not nation states. They don't control territory. But they're not non-state actors either. That word has sort of been um, taken over to mean a bad guy of some sort. So this is why um, in 2017, I proposed this new term um, to describe their new role, net states. And how have some of their roles really changed over time? Let's say, you know, a lot of these new tech companies are expanding every year. Uh, can we see a clear trend? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that really got my attention on this was about the ways that tech companies were moving away from their core digital services and products and into things like public infrastructure. So take Google for an example. So Google has, of course, many um, sister companies and parent company Alphabet. One of the new offshoots is called Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners, which was created recently after their former company, Sidewalk Labs, sort of fell apart. But their goal is really to help build cities from the ground up 
and infuse a digital layer into the very fabric of the city itself, into the roads, the sidewalks, the street lamps, you name it. So the question then becomes, if we are now seeing digital infrastructure um, being built not by people that we vote for, but by pr the private sector, by tech companies, what happens to that data that gets generated through our everyday actions, like walking down the street? So I think their investment of um, tech companies into infrastructure is something that we need to be paying really careful attention to. Amazon is another really great example. They're expanding into the security area with their ring cameras. Um, they're just, in some ways, they seem like a home convenience, just a way to have some more security and know who's knocking on your door. But they have partnerships with more than 2,000 police stations across the country. So they're really moving into an area that used to be something that was just handled by governments alone. And it's not clear what happens with the data that they collect or who gets to make that decision. But it doesn't seem like it's the citizen, which is why I think this is something we have to pay attention to. And could you explain a little bit of difference between the terminology of big tech versus net states? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of big tech companies out there who are not actually doing anything besides their core business. So take Twitter, for example. Twitter is an online platform, and that's where they've remained. They're not making big investments into security or defense or diplomacy. They seem really content to just stick with their core products and services. But companies like Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, I mentioned in the book Tesla, um, because Elon Musk and his sort of confederacy of businesses are really also expanding into infrastructure. So that's one of the distinctions that I make in the book is that just because you make technology and just because you could be a big technology provider doesn't necessarily mean that you are interested in the functions of government like these net states are. So it's just really a subset of big tech that we're talking about. Okay. And surely these net states have been affected by this pandemic, uh, positively or negatively, depending on which perspective you take. But what is the role these net states play in responding to the pandemic? And have you seen a specific area where they directly substitute the governments? Oh, absolutely. So the pandemic has actually been very good for business for the uh, for for net states, but it wasn't clear in the beginning that that was going to be the case. One of the things that was most surprising um, was at the very early days of the pandemic back in March of last year, we saw countries across the world stepping in to help their citizens so that they could stay home. So, for instance, uh, when Japan recorded, I think, something like 20 cases of COVID in their country, they closed schools and asked people to work from home, but so that people would be able to stay home with their children and help with their schoolwork they pledged to pay parents up to $80 a day. Now, around the same time in March of 2020, we saw that same kind of activity, but not coming from the US government. It was coming from Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and Google, when they announced that they would continue to pay their hourly wage workers if they had to reduce their hours because of the pandemic. So they were subsidizing their incomes because of the pandemic in a way that the government simply was not. So. This is one of the ways that they have taken on a different kind of role through the pandemic. Um, another th interesting thing that they, we've seen them do is make really major investments. So take advantage of the popular focus on the pandemic to make investments that people may have questioned otherwise. So Google, for instance, a few years ago, tried to make a contract with the Department of Defense 
It was a small project by Google size. It was about a $10 million project called Project Maven. And there was a huge uprising within Google from staffers that said, we do not believe that Google should be in the business of partnering with the defense agencies. And it, this backlash was so intense that Google actually backed down and they let the contract expire. During the pandemic, about late April of 2020, they entered into a new contract with the Department of Defense and it got almost no attention whatsoever. There was maybe 10 headlines about it, no, um, no protests from employees. And I think this is because people were so distracted by the pandemic, they weren't paying attention in the same way. So the pandemic proved as a kind of good safety net, a good cover for investments that might have raised eyebrows in other circumstances. Yeah, so talking about legislature, um, there's a growing discussion around antitrust laws and breaking up a lot of the big tech companies in general. But at the same time, as you just mentioned, we also see many of these companies getting big defense contracts and being pushed as national tech champions. So what do you think about how policymakers are reacting to the rise of these net states? Will we see governments encourage a larger role and responsibility for these companies, or will they try to rein them in? I think that government wants to have its cake and eat it too, and I just don't think that it's possible. Um, on the one hand, they're saying to the tech sector, look, we really need you to be focused on the U.S. in terms of our defense and our national security and our tech sovereignty. Um, but on the other hand, we also think that you're too big and we want to kind of cut you down to size. So I don't think that it's going to be possible to have both. I think that we're going to see some regulations put in place, but that will be focused on sort of what happens with user data. Um, but as I just noted, a lot of these big tech companies have expanded way beyond services that just involve user data. And so I think that the regulations aren't going to attack their ability to function um, in a way that, for instance, the, we see in the EU with the GDPR. Um, I think that the United States is very concerned about the rise of China technologically and needing to compete with them in terms of technology. So I think they're going to try to engage more diplomatically with the tech sector to get them on board instead of completely disempowering them by breaking them apart. So I actually don't think that the anti um, the antitrust regulations are going to be um, all that fulsome. I think that they're going to be kind of measured um, by because they don't want to alienate them completely. So we'll see more of a relationship like states between states instead of state against company. Well, and this is something that we're seeing in other countries. So there are now tech ambassadors in several countries around the world. Denmark was the first Then we saw in Australia, France, Estonia, Austria. Um, I think Jordan now has a tech ambassador. And this is, I think, a very smart move because right now the relationship between government and big tech is one of, it's an adversarial relationship. It's not something that there's no place for dialogue that's constructive. Um, there's no real space to negotiate. Government has this posture that it can either fine or regulate big tech or leave it alone. But I think by having a tech ambassador, you can engage diplomatically with tech companies and start to find some constructive and creative ways to address kind of areas of common concern around the world. Um, so I think that we're going to see more tech ambassadors from different countries over time. And I think the U.S. would be wise to adopt one as well. I wonder what it takes to become a tech ambassador. That sounds really interesting. <laughs> Thank you for your answers. We'll take a quick break and be right back. 
So we talked a lot about your book, The Information Trade, during the first half of this episode. And going on from that discussion, I just want to bring about the issue of privacy and data protection. The fact that these net states and a lot of new technologies in general have a lot of power about um, what we see here or are able to do is quite significant. Consequences could severely damage democratic institutions, trust in legal and political systems, or the social fabric. How can policymakers redefine po uh, privacy norms so that the technology can better serve the public rather than potentially be a threat to it? It's a really good question. And this is one of the questions that working in government myself, I ask myself all the time is, what can government do that only government can do? And what should be left to the private market and citizens to figure out on their own? Um, I think what we've seen over the last 10 years is that leaving the privacy debate entirely to the private sector has not gone very well for citizens. It's simply not within the business models of places like Facebook to protect the privacy of users or to ensure that their data remains secure um, or in within the confines of Facebook itself. So I think what legislators need to do here is figure out some sort of regulations to ensure that people have um, a right to the data that they share and a right to request the kind of uh, inventory of what's out there. So we see something like this within, in Europe's uh, GDPR where people have the right to request sort of a data profile. If they wanna ask Google or Facebook what data they have stored on an individual, those companies are required to provide it. Now, it's not yet clear that this is happening in practice but at least there are regulations there that people can turn to should they feel really strongly about it. So I think we're gonna see some sort of regulations along those lines emerge in the United States as well. And it was gonna require net states to really th rethink their business models because it's not going to be sustainable to just make money off of user data if users have greater control over that data. And expanding this um, idea of what can government do that only government can do, um, in an international or more global perspective, personal data collection regulations vary, as you just mentioned, the European Union's GDPR. Do you believe that there is a possibility for a global standard? And if so, what are some core universal concepts of privacy that should be embedded into our technology, regardless of these differences? I think it's essential that we have a global standard. I don't think it's going to be possible to um, see that standard applied equally across countries but there needs to be something that we can turn to. So the United Nations would be an excellent place to take up this kind of conversation and have some sort of user rights protections detailed um, that countries can sign on to in the same way that they've signed on to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I think that the challenge will be, as with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, is that different countries interpret that differently. And just because they're signatories to it doesn't mean that they follow those rules in their own territories. So we do need to have a universal standard, but we also need to have national level regulations and laws to ensure that those standards are applied. And, to, and different countries will interpret this, these standards differently. So I think that that's something that we need to keep in mind. And it's, it's quite complicated because there's going to be, for instance, these transnational companies who operate across the globe through their data centers, through the submarine cables that provide internet access. Um, just because for instance, let's say you live in France and you say, I would like this data to be deleted off Google in France. It doesn't mean that it's not stored somewhere on a data center outside of the country. 
Um, and there's not yet ways to enforce companies like Google to delete a record of someone across all of their data centers and all of their different um, locations. So I think that it's going to be a complicated implementation, but the principles still need to be worked out first. That's a really interesting idea. Like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is something that we take as almost a given, um, such a core fundamental part of our international realm. And it will be interesting to see one be creative for technology sector as well. Do you know if this discussion has been started in the UN and um, how that's been going? I know that there are various bodies within the UN universe that are talking about this, but I think the more interesting conversations are among the organizations that deal with standards like ICANN. Tim Berners-Lee, who is one of the founders of the internet, of course, has started um, a sort of networked approach to developing principles of, of rights for users. It's not much more than an email list at this point, um, but he, certainly he's got the clout and the credibility to be able to get a lot of attention for a set of principles that are crowdsourced in this way. So I think that we might see these principles codified in a place like the United Nations, but I don't know that that's where they're gonna be originated. I think that that might come from the tech sector or tech advocates, I should say, um, who are working together as we speak to put this kind of set of principles together. And it'll definitely be something that we as a journal um, start looking for in the near future. So going on from there, as technology users and citizens of the world, how much responsibility lays with us to protect our own data and what should we think about as we integrate technology into our daily lives? That's a great question. And it's one of the real challenges of the era that we're in is that, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago, you could just say, well, I won't join Facebook or I won't join Twitter and then my data will be safe. Um, but there's, that's not the case any longer. Even if you're not actively a member of these social networks, it doesn't mean that they don't have any data on you, number one. Number two, there's so much of our interaction that occurs online that there's probably some digital service you're using that is owned by one of the major tech companies. Because even though net states themselves may only be five or six of them, as I mentioned earlier, what they also are are parent companies to hundreds and hundreds of other smaller companies. I remember when the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke around Facebook, Lots of people left Facebook to go to Instagram, but Facebook owns Instagram. So their way that their data is going to be used is really not going to be any different. So in terms of what users can do, I think they need to be very careful about what they put online anywhere, because it's not always clear who owns that data ultimately and what might be done with it. So I think the, the way to think about it is if you don't want to see it shared, don't put it in digital form. That's a good rule of thumb to follow in this digital age. And lastly, just to wrap up our conversation today, we ask all of our guests this question, um, but what do you think is missing in the current debates about technology and privacy? Are there some underexplored areas you believe to be important and how can academia play a role in this? So I think one of the things that's only starting to be discussed now is this notion of tech sovereignty, which is the idea that nation states need to have some measure of control and confidence over the tech that they're using and creating. Right now we have this globalized world in which you might get plastics from one country and microchips from another country and silicon from yet another. And there's not necessarily any way to ensure that those supply chains are going to always be there. So for instance, there are a number of rare earth minerals that are in that go into the production of technology products 
that are mined solely in China. China controls something like 80% of the world's rare earth supply. Um, so I think nations are getting more conscious of the fact that they need to be in greater control of not just the finished product of technologies, um, not just the data that technology generates, but the raw materials to create the technologies. So I think this idea of tech sovereignty is something that needs to be explored. And where academia can come in is to do studies and do the research of primary source research to find out where all are the supply chains, where are the materials coming from, who has a vested interest in ensuring that they maintain uh, a monopoly over certain kinds of supplies, what kinds of deals are being struck with other countries to maybe keep supplies between just a small group. I think that that kind of research requires the tenacity and time that only academics have. This has been a very interesting conversation, Professor. Thank you so much for sharing all your insightful um, thoughts on the change in technology and changing privacy regulations. Um, we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for all the things you mentioned today. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone again for tuning into a broadcast. We'll be back in two weeks. 